0: Mia, okay. flirta. Mia Flirta. Flirta.
1: this recording? Oh, total. I've <laughs> been recording for a minute. Uh, it's all solid gold. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor.
0: And I'm Marcel Kosman. And today we're talking about
1: the third novel in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Prisoner
0: of Azkaban.
1: Just to give you a little context, uh, we are back to our normal recording situation. It is basically bedtime for responsible adults, (laughs) and instead we are... Having some snacks, drinking some wines. There's so much popcorn. We ate a lot of popcorn. We are ready to go. First years, follow me. It's time for the sorting chat. I'm going to start in right right in with the sorting chat with a moment that I underlined, not because it was thematically interesting, but because it made me feel excruciatingly tender, which is the moment where... Um, all of the third year Gryffindors find out the new password, which is a particularly difficult password. And Neville Longbottom sadly says, oh no, because Neville Longbottom is very bad at remembering passwords. Oh,
0: that is such foreshadowing for what happens throughout the rest of the book and Neville's
1: utter and complete disgrace. Neville breaks my heart in this book. Having some sense of Neville's increasing importance as the books go on, I feel like he is at his most abject in this book, almost entirely deleted from the narrative, um, only to appear in moments to utterly shame himself.
0: And you know what's really interesting? We talked about this a little bit um, before we started recording. But despite this being Neville's most shamiest of books, this is also the book where the parallels between Harry and Neville start to really come out. And one of the things that I noticed at the very beginning of rereading this book is that Harry identifies himself as Neville Longbottom on the night bus, (gasps) which just floored me because I know about what's going to happen and all the things that we're going to learn about Harry and Neville and their parallel lives and how things could have been so different for Neville Longbottom. And it's just this really incredible moment where Harry, who just has everything go so well for him, despite all of these terrible circumstances and Neville who just, it's just, it's just bullshit after bullshit for poor (laughs) Neville.
1: (laughs) We have a a very soft spot in our hearts for Neville here. Um, Speaking of the night bus, I think that you wanted to talk about how much you love the night bus. I
0: just just loved, I just loved the night bus so much. I forgot how much I loved the night bus. I think before I started rereading this book, I think I thought that the night bus was just this like purple, weird bus that shows up a couple of times in the Harry Potter series. But when I was rereading it, the pun in Night Bus slapped me in the face. It's called the Night Bus with a K because it rescues stranded witches and wizards. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> it's so smart. It just, just never occurred to me before. And for 15 sickles... You can get hot chocolate.
1: Harry asks for the hot chocolate, but the bus is too erratic and it spills everywhere. (laughs) Like their whole pricing model is based on the ability to safely consume a hot beverage, which you clearly absolutely cannot do on this bus. No, and everybody's so excited to get off the bus
0: because they're all in beds, but the beds just slide around everywhere. Oh, it's so
1: precious! It's I mean, so- it's this one of these wonderful moments. There's so many wonderful moments in these books where magic works a little bit, but not enough. Ooh. So, like, there's enough magic here for there to be a magical bus that appears and disappears <laughs> and has full size four poster beds on it, mm-hmm. but not enough magic for that bus to appear and disappear smoothly or for those four poster beds to like stay still (laughs) when the bus moves.
0: Yeah. And how is it, how is it that you catch it? You just like stick out your, you're stranded. You need to be stranded and then you stick out your wand and then the bus just appears.
1: It's incredible. I just love it. It's one might say it's magical. I also just want to note, so we talked in our last episode when we were talking about the second movie in the series, a lot about the way that magic looks in Mm -hmm. the Harry Potter series. I think I described it as people shouting and waving their wands at things. And there's this moment um, in this book where uh, Professor Trelawney is talking about the kinds of magic that other wizards do. Wizards who are not divination professors. And she describes magic as loud bangs and smells and sudden disappearings. Which, in addition to just being a wonderful phrase, just gave me this moment where I was like, that's exactly what I said about magic. That's, I, <laughs> Professor Trelawney and I are the same person. That's terrifying, but also enchanting. I mean, we have very similar fashion senses, I think. It's things. drapey things. We're both really into like oversized glasses and drapey Mm -hmm. clothing. And predicting the future using various tools. Yeah, yeah. I'm also pretty into divination. Um, I also believe very strongly that if a student isn't naturally skilled in the subject that you're teaching, the best approach is to just publicly shame them (laughs) until they quit your class. (laughs) But more of that when we get to potions class.
0: Um, one other thing that I want to add while we're talking about witches and witches who we encounter for the first time in this book, I want to point out something that I never noticed before, which is... Witches where? I
1: get it. Witches.
0: Witches. Witches. So embarrassed. (laughs) So the thing that I wanted to, uh... (laughs) mention about madame Rosmerta, who we meet for the first time in this book um is the fact that she so we know that she's quite attractive we know that um ron uh gets a little bit flushy when he encounters her and wants to go to the bar to order the butter beers for uh, him and harry and hermione when they're at the hogshead three boars it's definitely not the Three Boars. That's in Edmonton.
1: What the fuck is it called? <laughs> I think well, when you said Hogshead, I believed you. No, because there is a Hogshead, but it's not. The- oh, it's the Three Broomsticks. Three Broomsticks. Okay. By the way, the no. Three Boars is an excellent local drinking establishment. Very tasty cocktails. Very expensive, though. And very hip. If you enjoy a waxed mustache, try <laughs> a gin-based savory cocktail at Three Boars. <laughs> you won't regret it.
0: Anyway, so the kids are at the three broomsticks for the first time. Ron gets a little bit flushy when he wants to go and order the drinks because he obviously finds Madame Rosmerta very attractive. I think this becomes a running theme. Like, Madame Rosmerta is just extremely attractive. She's described as wearing like sequined sparkly turquoise heels, which are obviously a sign for how incredibly she dresses and is obviously very fashionable and sexy. I just want to point out that Madame Rosmerta is not young. She's not young in the, like, normative traditional sense of what we would think of as an attractive barmaid. Madame Rosmerta must be in her 50s because she describes remembering, serving James and Lupin and Sirius uh, and Peter when they were at Hogwarts, which would have been about 30 years ago.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even sort of generously assuming that she was like, what, 18? 16! Mm -hmm. Let's say it's England. Things are crazy. She was 16 when she served them. That still means she's a woman in her late 40s. Yeah. And it's kind of really wonderful to Mm -hmm. do the math there and realize that this woman who is, like, one of the book's earliest sex symbols Mm -hmm. is an older woman. Yeah. Older with, like, enormous scare quotes around it. The scariest scare quotes. Like,
0: (laughs) we say as two women in our 30s, we just want to, like, emphasize heavily that, like, women in their 40s are not... Actually old.
1: Yeah. But like we're talking normatively here. Yeah. Just the way that you sort of if I say a sort of curvy, sort of attractive barmaid, the normative image of that woman is not going to be a woman in her late 40s. Oh, no. And I love that it is here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's all I wanted to say.
1: All right. I have a quick question. I'm actually responsible for um a uh, final revisions this episode, but I'm not gonna make Marcel ask this question. I'm gonna put it out to our readers since I'm not allowed to research anything. <laughs> Can you tell me what steak and kidney pudding is? Because, I get steak and kidney pie. That's a savory sort of a pie, right? Like a sure. pot pie. Yeah. That has some, like, some various kinds of meats in it. Yeah. I understand uh, that organ meats are tasty. I wouldn't know. I mean, neither of us eat meat, but, you know, that's a thing <laughs> I've heard. But my understanding is that pudding in the British lexicon means dessert. So is this steak and kidney dessert what is happening? (laughs) Why is it so gross? I'm particularly hoping that my good friend, Melissa Dalgleish, is a listener and will answer me about this question. Because I feel like of all the people I know, she's the person who's most likely to understand a mysterious British food stuff. Actually,
0: that reminds me, we posed a question during the last um, episode to our listeners wanting to know why it is that spiders are afraid of basilisks. And we got some really interesting answers. I don't remember any of them. Oh,
1: I do. And the answer was so good. So the thing is that basilisks can petrify you if you look at them and spiders have like a ton of eyes and their eyes point in all directions and they can't close them so spiders are uniquely vulnerable Mm. to the basilisks spiders own sort of natural weapons will not work against the basilisk Mm. because they have to look at the basilisk
0: our listeners are the smartest they really are (laughs) Our second segment is Flourish and Blots, in which we bring a book historical and materialist perspective to our reading of Harry Potter.
1: All right. So everyone already knows my story about the first three books at this point. Um, That is, I have the first three books in hardcover. I have all the books in hardcover. I'm very fancy. Um, They came in a box set. And so instead, I would like to talk very briefly about this actual series of the books, since these are no longer the books that you buy when you go into a store to buy Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. These are not the copies that you will get anymore. Mm -mm. Um, But these copies certainly shaped my understanding of the series in profound ways. They're all incredibly brightly colored. Mm -hmm. They're very clearly children's books. But what I've started to notice is that there's a sort of coercive function to the illustrations on these covers. Tell me about that. So let's look at the front cover. The front cover is framing the scene in which Harry and Hermione save the day right at the end. Right. Right? And what is it telling us? Look at the facial expressions of the two characters.
0: Hermione's terrified. Harry looks determined and Buckbeak looks pissed.
1: Yeah. So you, right up front, this is framing a moment that is in no way interpreted this heavy handedly for us as readers. Mm. Um, You know, this is a moment in which both Hermione and Harry are saving the day together, Mm -hmm. right? Through friendship and collaboration. And a moment in which Buckbeak while also helping them get up to the window, is also in fact one of the victims mm-hmm. that they are helping to save. Mm-hmm. But the simplicity of this image, which is Harry is a brave hero, Hermione is a scared girl, mm-hmm. and Buckbeak is a scary monster, mm-hmm. takes everything that's good about this book out. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And similarly, mm-hmm. look at the back cover. Which is an image of the black dog that Harry is encountering mm-hmm. throughout the book, which he believes to be the Grim, which is a symbol of his own death. But we realize eventually is, in fact, Sirius Black in his animagus form. Mm-hmm. This dog is slavering and vicious looking. It doesn't even have pupils. It has no pupils. It's drooling, like, emphatically. And it also just looks insane. It looks a little bit like the Bloomsbury dog, though. It looks nothing like the Bloomsbury dog. (laughs) You looked
0: at the little Bloomsbury dog under.
1: I mean, they're both dogs, so black. You nailed that. (laughs) Don't become a veterinarian. So we'll talk in a moment about sort of narrative unreliability and how it's become even more important in this book that has been in the previous ones. But this is another moment where they've taken what ends up being a very sort of skewed image of a character, mm-hmm. and instead they've concretized it. They've made it just the way that you see that character now. Mm. In conclusion, I don't like the pictures on this book.
0: You know what I just noticed right now, though, while you were describing it? Is the moon. It's a full moon in the background behind Harry Hermione and Buckbeak.
1: Yeah. Um
0: and the full moon is such an important and underrepresented symbol throughout the book, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Um but that's all I want to say about it. That is a very good point. That I, is also I only just noticed it. Which it's is- also hinting at what will be another central part of this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um do you have a story
0: that you'd like to tell? Uh, I sort of told my story last time because the the punchline of the story is that the word Azkaban didn't make any sense to me. And so I was just like, oh, Harry Potter and the prisoner of nonsense words. But one (laughs) thing that I will point out um, is I have this habit when I when I read books, I sometimes leave things in them, things that I use as bookmarks. I tend to read a lot when I'm taking long trips, so I will often leave ticket stubs and stuff like that in them. So I'm not actually going to tell a story about when I bought the book, because I already told that. But what I will do is describe a couple of the things that are in the book. So one is a blue wristband, I think. It's but a festival wristband. It's a festival wristband. I think that this is from the Wolf Island Music Festival, ah. but I'm not sure what year. Um, but it's in there. So obviously, I wanted to keep it and treasure it forever. And another thing that I have in here is a GoBus ticket, which... Is dated August 2009, which I thought was really surprising huh. um, and I don't know where it is right now, so it's in there somewhere. it doesn't matter where. I also have this receipt, which is for Guelph. So it's funny because I have this thing from I have this thing from 2009, which is when I lived in Montreal. I have this thing from Guelph, which I live where I lived in 2010 until 2012. Um, so I've obviously read this book multiple times during the last you know. Seven years. Oh, there's the go bus ticket. Anyway.
1: Ah, no kidding. Whereas much as with the second book, um, there is no evidence for me that I have ever read this copy of this book before. (laughs) Um, As I've said before, I've only read each of these books once and I'm pretty sure that this is not the copy that I originally read. I'm pretty sure that these copies went unread until recently. So I imagine that books like the toys in the Toy Story movies want to be used. Mm -hmm. And so these poor sad books are finally achieving their life goal which is to be read by somebody
0: it's like what george poulet says books are objects they wait for us to deliver them from their materiality
1: i literally just got goosebumps
0: i'll tweet about this
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right nerds take out your close reading glasses because it's time for the boy who narrated in which we demonstrate just how little we trust anything a man tries to tell us by (laughs) just Sorry. Sorry. Did I start
0: that (laughs) over? No, no, just keep going. That was amazing.
1: In which we demonstrate just how little we trust anything a man tries to tell us by discussing the unreliability of Harry as a narrator.
0: Where should we start with this? We have so many things that we want to say in this section. Um, do you want to start small and then go and then go big?
1: Yeah, let's okay. start small. So, one of the first things we—I mean—we've been talking about this since since the first book, but I feel like so far it's just continued to get more important with every book. Mm-hmm. And what struck me very early on in this book is that Stan of the Night Bus brings up quite early on, the issue of what people do and do not notice. So he's talking about muggles, and he has nothing but contempt for muggles. And he says, don't listen properly, do they? Don't look properly either. Never notice nothing, they don't. And so what is being introduced for us really early on here is the fact that not only is perspective, what people do and do not see, important at the level of narrative structure, but it's also an important theme in this book. Mm -hmm. It becomes really, really key to how the rest of the book is going to unfold as we think about how people don't notice what's right under their noses Mm -hmm. because they have already decided how to understand the world around them. And that has a really powerful force on you. If you decide that you already know the way the world works, you're not going to be looking for the unexpected and you're not going to see anything that's surprising. Mm -hmm. So in terms of where we see that unfolding at the level of the narrative, one of the key ones is Lupin being a werewolf. Right.
0: Right. And all of the work that Snape does in trying to, without outing Lupin directly which he does, in fact, eventually do later, trying to point out to the students the fact that they're m- missing something that is so, to state, plainly obvious. Mm-hmm. And then, which eventually becomes incredibly obvious to Hermione later on, mm-hmm. but that despite doing an entire essay about werewolves and how you notice them,
1: mm-hmm.
0: none of the other students pick up
1: on. Yeah. Well, I think Hermione's the only one who actually writes the essay. Oh, that's right yeah she writes it early and everybody else waits until the last minute and then lupin tells them they don't have to write it so hermione's the only one who's done the work and so she's the only one who Mm. actually figures it out but all of the information all of the key information that we need to recognize what lupin is is Mm -hmm. there for us the book gives it to us Mm -hmm. similarly the book gives us every clue that we need to be suspicious of scabbers, Mm -hmm. right? It's giving us so much like this is a common domestic house rat and yet it's 12 years old. Um, Every time that the sneakoscope is around them, it's going off Mm -hmm. telling them that they need to be suspicious. This cat has like a mysteriously murderous approach to this other animal, right? Ah. Like we're given all of the clues, but because we're reading it from Harry's perspective and Harry doesn't see it, yeah. we also don't realize what's important.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. In that way, this is a remarkably Sherlock Holmesy mm-hmm. novel. novel, yeah. right? Because yeah. it's actually laid out for us all of the clues and then sort of only puts them together for us at the end. And it was up to us to try to piece it together.
0: Yeah. Except unlike Sherlock Holmes, when I reread it, all of the clues make sense. And no matter how many times I reread... Sherlock Holmes, or rewatch the wonderful BBC contemporary television adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. I do not understand how all the things fit together. I still, I just watch it. Like, oh, okay, good,
1: yes, <laughs> yes, Lady in Pink, yes, pink yes. suitcase,
0: sure, yes, yes. oh, yes, mm-hmm. sure, got
1: yeah. it, yeah, yes. I have an argument to make about the narrative structuring of the BBC adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, but this is not the time. We'll start a new podcast about Sherlock. <laughs> Shall
0: we talk about Snape? We should, yes. Not
1: too much, though, because
0: we're going to talk about him during potions class.
1: Yes. What we're going to talk about here is the ongoing construction of Snape as a villain, um, which depends primarily on Harry's perspective Mm -hmm. about him. Snape, obviously, again, is the sort of villain of the piece for most of this book, um, until we realize in the end that other than being um, perhaps a little emotionally unstable, he hasn't actually done anything villainous at all. And one of the key moments that jumped out for me is when Harry's in Lupin's office and Snape comes in with this potion for Lupin and gives it to him. And clearly Harry believes that Snape is poisoning Lupin, Mm -hmm. right? That that chapter ends with the image of the goblet sitting on the desk smoking. Mm -hmm. And the narrative closes in on that image as a way of encouraging us to read that goblet in a particular way. Which is the way that Harry's reading it, Mm -hmm. right? Which is as a piece of evidence that's saying that Snape is a villain. But retroactively, we look back at that smoking goblet and realize that what that is, is in fact a sign of Snape's remarkable competence. Mm -hmm. Because he has been brewing this potion for Lupin that makes him totally tame, totally not dangerous as a werewolf that allows him to hold a job like he's never been able to do before that's incredibly difficult to brew that most wizards cannot, <laughs> right? Which is another reminder that Snape while being not a super good teacher is an incredibly competent wizard. Yes. He's really good at what he does. Yes. And so just that single image, which we see Harry misreading so entirely mm-hmm. um, is a great reminder of how the book is very deliberately, giving us opportunities to misread signs and then showing us how we have, in fact, misread them.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about a little bit um, when we were preparing is the fact that Lupin is the first competent defense against the dark arts teacher that they have. And this is something that the students, including Harry, remark on and cannot help but be impressed by. It is A little bit silly that Harry would even think that Lupin could be fooled by something as simple as Snape secretly trying to poison Lupin. Yeah. Like the fact that he is so good at detecting the dark arts and teaching the dark arts and competent and skilled in defense against the dark arts that he would be somehow fooled
1: by a poisoned potion is nonsense. It's just such a childish perspective, right? That Harry in these early books is so much a child and so bad at also understanding how other people are seeing the world around him. And so somehow believes that he is uniquely qualified to detect Snape's villainy. Mm -hmm. Whereas Lupin, who is like also a very competent adult, would be like... (laughs) Oh, a potion for me? Well, shucks, thanks. And we're just like <laughs> down it without asking a question. And also that Snape would just straight up murder like one of his co-workers.
0: Yeah. And not at all secretly. No. Just like right in the open. Oh, it's smoking because it's
1: Tang. <laughs> just in front of a student. Yeah. Would just murder uh, somebody in front yeah. of a student. So that's that's a little suspicious. Yeah. But what's interesting to me is that um in the long run we are um even as we uh see snape behaving in these ways that do look villainous um ultimately the response of other adults to Snape Mm -hmm. is the way that we have to sort of register the difference between Harry's very, very biased perspective towards him Mm -hmm. and then who Snape actually is as a character, right? So we talked about how Lupin is perfectly willing to drink something that Snape gives to him, even though Lupin knows that Snape hates him. Which means that Lupin believes that Snape, despite all of his grudges and past sort of The fact that Snape obviously hates Lupin. Mm -hmm. Um, Lupin still believes that Snape is a professional and an adult first. Yeah.
0: As we will learn, Harry grows to trust and rely on Sirius quite closely. But Sirius ends up being...
1: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1...
0: The only adult who doesn't trust and get along with Snape, much to his, I don't know what the word is
1: that I'm looking for,
0: demise? (laughs) Much to his demise. (laughs) Spoiler alert. I mean,
1: yeah, like that won't work out for him. Like trusting Snape ends up being a very important thing to Mm -hmm. do in these books. But that means that we have to figure out whose other opinions to believe in, right? Mm -hmm. So Lupin clearly has at least some faith in him, as does Dumbledore, right? Dumbledore repeatedly has faith in Snape. Dumbledore sort of laughs off a lot of Snape's overreactions to situations. He doesn't seem alarmed by the way that Snape behaves in different situations. He keeps saying, like, Snape is a good man. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's the one who points out when Harry is feeling outraged that Sirius has to go on the run and that Snape's story will be believed over his, Dumbledore is the one who points out Sirius has not acted like an innocent man. Mm -hmm. Right? So Dumbledore is aware of how important it is to, what am I trying to say?
0: Dumbledore is aware of the importance of how other people's perspectives affect the way that somebody is perceived more widely, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so we, as readers of the book, know that Dumbledore is the source of all information and knowledge, however problematic we might find that. But Dumbledore, unlike Harry, is distinctly aware of the fact that that is not enough for anything in the real world. That's enough for Hogwarts, mm-hmm. and it's enough for Dumbledore's inner circle of anti-Voldemort people, but it's not sufficient for the wizarding world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's not sufficient for the wider world to just believe that somebody is good. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's sort of another moment where we are being encouraged to see a divide between a child's perspective on Mm -hmm. the world and the sort of reality of the complex adult world beyond that. Yeah.
0: Something that I think is a really interesting parallel, though, if we think about this line, Sirius has not acted like an innocent man. Nor does Snape. <laughs> Snape at no point acts like an innocent man. He always acts particularly creepy and villainous, such as that scene where he delivers to Lupin the smoking goblet. He, and I quote, backed out of the room, unsmiling and watchful. Who backs out of a room?
1: Me, every day. It's creepy.
0: It's the only way I
1: leave rooms. I back out of them, unsmiling <laughs> and watchful, maintaining unnerving eye contact with whoever's in that room Mm -hmm. what's important here is that snape might act in a way that's creepy and villainous towards the students but when he is behaving towards authority figures Mm -hmm. he acts in a totally like he's surprisingly non-hypocritical in the way that he acts around authority figures right Mm -hmm. he makes it very clear how he feels about everyone he makes it very clear exactly sort of what you know, he doesn't trust Sirius. Mm-hmm. He doesn't trust Lupin. He never lies to Dumbledore about that. Mm-hmm. He never lies to Fudge about that. Like, he's yeah. he's very upfront about his suspicions, right? Whereas Sirius is sneaking around Mm
0: -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah so let's talk a little bit about serious and about how for the vast majority of this book he's portrayed um as a villain and it's one of those things similar to the way that we read lupin uh on a second reading once you know that lupin is a werewolf you know you see all the signs early on Serious. similarly, once you know that he's innocent, all of those things sort of fall into place and become quite clear from the beginning of the book. Everything sort of makes sense because it makes sense once you know what happens. But what I'm really interested in is Harry's shift in perspective, which happens in the Shrieking Shack. Because at first, Harry is so certain that the information that he's been given is complete, when we as readers, especially as readers going through the second or a or thousandth or whatever time, we know that it's not, we yeah. know very much that Harry only has little bits and pieces and that Harry is taking those little bits and pieces and extrapolating from them and deciding that he knows everything and, and how incorrect he is. And so there's this really, um, this really fantastic moment. Um, and it is, when Sirius Black is confronting Harry and Hermione once they have arrived in the Shrieking Shack. And Sirius says, I thought you'd come and help your friend, blah, 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 blah. Your father would have done the same for me. Brave of you not to run for a teacher. I'm grateful. It will make everything much easier. And then the narrator tells us, the taunt about his father rang in Harry's ears as though Black had bellowed it. A boiling hate erupted in Harry's chest, leaving no place for fear, blah, 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 blah. But once you know that Sirius is innocent and that Sirius loved James Potter like a brother, and you read that, you know that he means that sincerely. And yet Harry hears it as a taunt.
1: Mm-hmm. That's another moment in which we see the narrative representing to us as objective fact, something that is, mm-hmm. in fact, incredibly um, sort of limited, just... Uh, function of how Harry is seeing the world around us, right? Mm-hmm. And those are just sort of little moments that you pick up on where it becomes so clear that we should not be trusting the way that Harry is characterizing the world around mm-hmm. him. We shouldn't be trusting his representation of these characters. At no point should we be treating the narrative voice of these novels as objective. And even though it only jumps out to us in these more obvious moments once we've registered those moments we have to then go back and read the entire rest of the book with the same kind of suspicion mm-hmm. right and so that that means that when we look back at you know the villainous characters like malfoy and snape mm. um we have to think twice about yes. whether they're in fact as villainous as they seem from harry's perspective or if much like Harry believing that Black is taunting him mm-hmm. that's just a sort of outcome of the fact that we're reading from this incredibly limited narrative perspective. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's this really great thing that happens a little bit further down the page when Harry is still yelling at Sirius and he he's like accusing him of having gone soft in Azkaban because he still doesn't know anything and then Hermione whimpers harry be quiet and then harry's response is to roar he killed my mom and dad as though that is somehow objective fact and it's just sort of reinforcing this
1: reliance that he has Mm -hmm. on his own limited knowledge Mm -hmm. the other dimension of this that i'd just like to mention is that once we thought through the fact that Harry's perspective is limited and that maybe Snape isn't quite the villain that we are supposed to be treating him as or that Harry is seeing him as. We have to maybe take some of Snape's critiques of Harry more seriously oh, yeah and there's this very interesting pair of moments. Uh, When Harry is caught by Snape coming back from Hogsmeade. I love that. It's such a good moment. Snape yells at him and basically says that Harry thinks that he's special and above the law. That he can do whatever he likes without consequence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, you know, the way that it's framed is just Snape being an asshole and just hating Harry. Mm -hmm. But only pages later, Lupin catches Harry with the Marauder's Map. And he says almost the same thing to him. He says to Harry, your parents died for you and you're gambling their sacrifice for a bag of magic tricks. Yeah. And all of a sudden we are given the sort of space to think through the kinds of decisions that Harry's making as a child and suddenly get that that adult perspective reminder, which is rules exist for a reason. Mm -hmm. People have, in fact, inconvenienced themselves a great deal to try to keep you safe. People have died to try to keep you safe. And you are throwing all of these things out the window because you think it's unfair that you don't get to go have fun with your friends because you're a child, right? And that's the kind of perspective you have as a child. But it's so interesting to think of this as a book written for a 13 year old Mm -hmm. that saying, you know, that incredibly self-centered worldview you have right now, which we all absolutely have at 13. Mm -hmm. Well, there's this world outside of you and the things that you do impact it. Yeah. Like, and that's, It's pretty remarkable to me the way that 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 lesson, which is such an important lesson to be learning at this age, is enacted at the level of narrative structure Mm -hmm. in these books. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I remember when I was reading it, having this moment where despite the fact that Snape was so clearly constructed to be a vindictive jerk... I couldn't help but being like, oh, he's so right, though. Mm -hmm. Like, all of these people have gone above and beyond to make sure that Harry is safe. And he's just sneaking around Hogsmeade because he wants to. And it's not fair that he doesn't get to go.
1: Yeah. Because he wants to have fun. And he wants to go see the joke shop. And he wants to have fun with the friends who are there. Not with the friends who are
0: maybe not allowed to go. Like Neville, who he throws off and misleads and lies to multiple times just so he doesn't have to hang out with him and can go sneak through a tunnel
1: and play in a joke shop. Yeah. I mean, we don't see at any point in these early books, Harry being explicitly a bully, but we get these little hints of the ways in which other characters might perceive him as being kind of a jerk. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, the way that he lies to Neville and goes out of his way to avoid having to talk to him is kind of jerky. Oh yeah, And I say this from the perspective of somebody who's absolutely done that, like <laughs> as an adult, yeah. um, but it's not nice. No. It's not nice behavior at all. I hate it when you do it to me. Yeah, I do it to you all the time.
0: What's that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach? Must be time for potions class, wherein we talk
1: about pedagogy and also Snape's alarming mental instability. So before we get into Snape, I think that we'd like to spend a little... Back into Snape because we have finished talking about him. I think we'd like to spend a little time talking about Lupin some more. Lupin specifically from a pedagogical perspective. Because this is the first competent defense against the dark arts teacher we've seen in the series. Mm -hmm. And he's also the first teacher whose lesson plan has been explicated for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you pointed out that he's sort of the first demonstrably competent instructor at mm-hmm. Hogwarts. We we trust that other instructors like McGonagall and Flitwick and um, Sprout. Sprout are all competent, mm-hmm. but that's because we are relying on little bits of information we don't actually see really with our own eyes mm-hmm. that they
1: are but with Lupin we absolutely do yeah we get this amazing view of like he has a lesson plan like he's leading his students through increasingly difficult obstacles that they'll have to face um we see all of these great moments where he combines theory with practice they're obviously reading through their lesson book and learning sort of Understanding these creatures they'll have to defend themselves against, but then also actually getting to practice it. There's a logical structure to his lessons. His exam, which we also get to see, is perfectly appropriate and reflects exactly what he's taught the students. Mm -hmm. His lessons are fun, but they also are informative and practical. Like, he's actually a really good teacher.
0: Yeah. We really get a sense when Snape intervenes and chastises the class for not being far enough ahead we really get a sense that there is a rationale behind the order in which lupin is educating the students because all of all of the students in the class say we're not there yet they don't say we don't know what werewolves are or we're never going to do that they have a sense that they will get to that they have a sense of when but that's not where they are yet. They just did these other things. Mm-hmm. And Snape just doesn't care because of his own things. Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking about Snape again. I can't yeah. help it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but he's he's such a foil to Lupin in this book. Yeah. So there are other little things about Lupin as a teacher that I found very appealing. There's the fact that he calls students by their first names, mm-hmm. um, that he doesn't, he clearly does not believe that in order to teach effectively, you have to emotionally distance yourself from your students because not only does he reach out to Harry, but you also see him, for example, caring a great deal about Neville. Mm-hmm. And after that Seamus Snape has publicly shamed Neville, yeah. Lupin makes a point of s- singling neville out giving him the opportunity to show that he is also a competent wizard right Mm. he understands that you can't teach children without also understanding those children as actual humans and individuals yeah absolutely there's also this moment where he and harry are talking and This is the moment where Harry confesses to Lupin what he hears when the Dementors are nearby, that he can hear his parents dying and Lupin goes to reach out to comfort him and then pulls back because he knows that it's not appropriate to touch your students.
0: (laughs) No matter how good intentioned you are, don't put your hands on your students. Mm -hmm. It's not okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just never appropriate. And Lupin, In every moment, this is the thing that's most remarkable to me. Because we have no sense that Lupin is a teacher by training. Mm -hmm. um, That there's any, you know, he has not done it for a long time. Um, As far as we know, he is another totally inappropriate hire on the part of Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. Who has an amazing history of just hiring the most inappropriate people. And yet Lupin seems to be like a teacher by birth, right? There's something about him that seems so totally suited for this line of work Mm -hmm. and there's this amazing moment where in the really like heated confrontation where they're all in the shrieking shack and um sirius is trying to uh convince them of what his story is and hermione has found a um a flaw in the narrative right which is that peter pettigrew can't be an animagus that that can't possibly be true um and this is Lubin asks her why it can't be true. And the narrative says, um, Lubin said calmly as though they were in class and Hermione had simply spotted a problem in an experiment with Grindelos, Which is that even in this this tense scene when this child has a question, Mm -hmm. he treats her with respect, right? That he invites her. He knows that she's smart. He knows that if she spotted a problem, the answer shouldn't be, say what Snape does, which is scream at her that she's too stupid to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. But to say, tell me what flaw you've seen. Yeah. And I will respectfully respond to that with an actual answer. <laughs> it's just incredible to see in this series of books that are supposed to be at a, about a school mm-hmm. for the first time to actually see somebody teaching yeah. was really heartwarming. And therefore... So, so devastating when he is outed by Snape in the end and has to leave. All of my previous like Snape fondness is really is it's getting pretty steadily eradicated by this rereading. And I'm finding it increasingly like, why is everybody writing Snape slash fiction? Why aren't you writing Lupin slash fiction? There should be so much more Lupin slash fiction. It's I mean, nonsense. There should
0: be entire series of books where Lupin just opens his own like Montessori school where he educates children using non-normative bullshit methods.
1: Oh my god. Oh, I would totally send my kids to Lupin school. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. So
0: we also want to talk about Trelawney in this Segment, But Snape's shit is bananas.
1: (laughs) B-A-N-A-N-A-S.
0: There are a number of places. There's the fact that he publicly shames Neville uh, in front of Lupin and the entire class, which we just talked about. He threatens to kill Neville's toad because Neville can't make the potion, right? Because Neville gets so nervous when Snape is around because Snape is so mean to him. He calls Hermione an insufferable know-it-all. At the end, this is the one that really, really bothers me the most when Hermione is trying to intervene and tell Snape that he is, or or express to Snape that he hasn't heard the whole story with Sirius and Peter um, and Remus, and Snape shou- shouts, keep quiet you stupid girl don't talk about things you don't understand he screams this at her when we as readers know that Hermione understands quite well what's going on in a way that he does not he has just lost his mind he is out of control full of fury he's not thinking clearly he is just one big ball of rage yeah
1: And what's so obvious here is how little he likes his students Mm -hmm. and how incapable he is of getting the distance that you need to have as an adult when you're working with young people, which is like, I don't care if you're having feelings right now, like Mm -hmm. you're interacting with young people. You need to like not threaten to murder their pets. Yeah, Super inappropriate. And while... We've been talking about narrative unreliability and how the narrative sort of presents us with things, but then encourages us to think more critically about them. At no point that does the narrative suggest that the dialogue that Harry reports is inaccurate. Oh yeah,
0: no. Right?
1: If Harry says, like, if the book says that somebody says something, it means they did say it. It's just his interpretation Mm -hmm. that might be off. I can't see how you could misread Snape calling one of his students an insufferable know-it-all and making her cry, yeah. Snake threatening to kill one of his students' pets. Because even if you're joking, even if you have a really dark sense of humor, you are doing it wrong. Yeah. You are being a teacher yeah. so, so wrong. And I find that, like, even while on the one hand, I think it's really interesting to see how the narrative is taking the framing of Snape as a villain and encouraging us to sort of push back against that and think twice about what we mean by a villain and what counts as being a good guy or a bad guy. Snape is unequivocally a terrible teacher Mm -hmm. and should not be allowed to be responsible for young people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Um, One of the things that happens at the very end of this book is uh, Snape is having a conversation with Fudge and he is expressing his frustration Uh, to fudge about Harry's refusal to follow the rules his throwing aside everyone's attempts to keep him safe and Snape says I don't think it's good for Harry that we keep letting him get away with these things I treat him like every other student and I remember when I was reading that at first I thought oh you don't but then actually I realized that yeah he does because he treats all of his students so badly the only the only student who he treats with any modicum of inappropriate reverence is Malfoy. And we know that that's because of Lucius Malfoy. Like, we, we know that. We are told that he favors the Slytherin house, but Malfoy is the only person who he really gives any kind of special attention to. And there's a whole other host of reasons for that. But he really does. He really treats Harry quite terribly. But he treats everyone else quite terribly as well. Yeah. Harry doesn't get special terrible treatment from Snape. I don't. I mean, maybe a little, but it's already on the spectrum of like you
1: treat your students so badly. I that I, like once you've crossed that yeah. once you cross that bridge, I would say we don't see him treating Harry any worse than he treats Ron or Hermione or Neville. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, Especially ex- not Neville. Oh my god, he's so mean to Neville. I'd say he's way meaner to Neville than he is. I mean the fact that when Neville is confronted with the Bogart. And his greatest fear emerges, and it's Snape. Like, as a teacher, if you are your student's greatest fear, you are doing so, so much damage. Yeah. Like, I don't, I just don't understand. Like, I get that Dumbledore has reasons for keeping Snape close. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't understand why, as a side effect of that, Dumbledore needs to give him carte blanche for emotionally abusing young people. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Dumbledore doing a bad job of running <laughs> his school... You want to talk about Dumbledore? Mm-hmm. No, no. Fuck that guy.
0: He, Dumbledore gets enough attention. <laughs> Dumbledore does not need the attention of this podcast. Like, he really doesn't. <laughs> Did you read that thing that Brent sent me? I didn't read it, but oh. I liked it on Facebook. Oh,
1: our our dear friend Brent sent sent me a top 10 or top nine list of um, old beardy wizards Um, and Dumbledore was on there but he was quite low on the list and the justification is that he's in fact that he should not be allowed to be responsible for other people's lives because he's clearly incredibly bad at it (laughs) it was very satisfying because it completely matched my understanding of Dumbledore as a character Mm -hmm. which is that like sure like he's a very good wizard but he is like a bullshit headmaster god damn that man should not be responsible for things i mean i love whimsy but i don't love whimsy in the hands of people who are like responsible for like choosing my course schedule
0: yeah like i don't i don't love whimsy as an organizational structure (laughs) (laughs) like i feel like whimsy is a really good compliment and relief from organization but as the organizational structure itself it's really not it's not a good idea
1: yeah okay i'm increasingly getting a sense that dumbledore's school is more like the hogwarts school of um like narrative convenience Mm -hmm. where dumbledore is just gathering everybody he thinks that he might need in order to fight voldemort which is like absolutely a a noble cause right like evil wizard is going to take over the world you know that he's coming back to power you know that you need to sort of set the stage for preventing his ultimate dominance Mm -hmm. um and so you're keeping close to you the people who will help you in that war so you're keeping close snape who is your you know double secret agent man you're keeping close the sort of chosen child and grooming him for his future as a hero Mm -hmm. and you're also keeping close professor trelawney who is this psychic right who Mm -hmm. has a as of the end of this book, had two legitimate visions in her life. That's fine, right? You want to keep these people close. You have reasons for doing all of this. That's one thing. I don't believe that you need to make the classes these people teach a mandatory part of the curriculum at your school. Well, I don't think divination
0: is mandatory. Potions is. Potions is mandatory. It's completely baffling that students should be required to undergo Snape's torture. Divination, though, I guess the thing is that it's such a bullshit subject anyway. I don't know. Like, is it? I guess it's kind of like, it's kind of like mandatory religion class that doesn't take the perspective of teaching religion as a historical sociological phenomenon. It's sort of, it's like the idea of teaching religion as objective fact,
1: which is one way to look at it. But that would be like, if the headmaster of the school believed very strongly in divination, and that was clearly the bias of the school, that would be one thing. But the headmaster of the school doesn't believe in it. Well, no,
0: because it's not mandatory, right? So it's kind of this like, sure, some people are going to take this class. It's kind of bullshit if they want to. Here's a person who we know is actually able to do the thing, but is not a very good teacher. Maybe there aren't We know how much trouble Dumbledore has finding competent defense against the dark arts teachers. Maybe there are even fewer competent
1: divination teachers. I mean, the closest equivalent I could think of as I was reading was that this is like an art or a theater class,
0: right? How dare you? So
1: it's (laughs) non-mandatory. It's the kind of, you've got this incredibly sort of like hippie, vague, yes. neurotic instructor who basically has singled out students she believes are particularly talented. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't have natural talent, it's just like, well, you're just not moved by it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that the rest of the teachers treat with a great deal of disdain because the subject that she is teaching is not real or legitimate. Right.
0: Yeah. So every, every other student in the class is blowing on a plastic recorder and there are a couple who are able to make a tune out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, this is – the way divination class is described is sort of like the way every art class appears in, like, a bad private school movie, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Except that I actually think art is great and clearly divination is bullshit in this book.
0: Except that it's not. Except that it's not, though. That's it the It is. It is. It's it not, though, is. because Tramani is correct about all of the predictions she makes, no matter how bullshit they are. She, every, every single one. Every single one. Remember, so the thing, remember when she tells Lavender... That the thing that she's dreading will happen on, like, whatever, October 16th or whatever. But that wasn't a thing that she was dreading. Until Trelawney told her, and then she was dreading it until she got the news. That's a self-fulfilling
1: prophecy. That's not
0: the same thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a prophecy that gets fulfilled. It's not like saying you're going to fail, and then you, like, do so poorly on everything because you believe you're going to fail, and then you fail. It's giving you a thing that you're dreading, and then that thing happens. The thing that you're dreading, which is the thing that you're dreading happens on the day that you're told that the thing that you're dreading is going to happen on.
1: So you're right. <gasps> <gasps> and here's why. <laughs> because at one point in the book, Lupin tells Harry that he's very smart because the thing he fears most is fear itself. Mm-hmm. And at another point after Harry has successfully made a Patronus for himself himself, because he knew that he had already made it, he says, the only reason I could make it is because I knew that I had already made it. Does that make any sense? And Hermione just says, I don't know. (laughs) So in fact, what the book is setting up for us is that that is perfectly possible, that there are self-fulfilling prophecies, not the right word for it, but that if you believe something's going to come to be, that will actually impact the way that the world is, which physics has actually told us is true. You win this round, Cosman. It is my
0: greatest pleasure when you tell me that I'm right about something where previously you disagreed with me. My greatest pleasure. Let's just end this podcast now, forever.
1: It's my greatest displeasure when somebody analyzes a book better than me. I am so mad right now.